The sorrow for the dead is the only sorrow from which we refuse to be divorced. Every other wound we seek to heal, every other affliction to forget, but this wound we consider it a duty to keep open. This affliction we cherish and brood over in solitude. Where is the mother who would willingly forget the infant that perished like a blossom from her arms, though every recollection is a pang? Where is the child that would willingly forget the most tender of parents, though to remember be but to lament? Who, even in the hour of agony, would forget the friend over whom he mourns? Who, even when the tomb is closing upon the remains of her he most loved when he feels his heart as it were crushed in the closing of its portal, would accept of consolation that which must be bought by forgetfulness? No, the love which survives the tomb is one of the noblest attributes of the soul. If it has its woes, it has likewise its delights. And when the overwhelming burst of grief is calmed into the gentle tear of recollection, when the sudden anguish and the convulsive agony over the present ruins of all that we most loved is softened away into pensive meditation on all that it was in the days of its loveliness, who would root out such a sorrow from the heart? Though it may sometimes throw a passing cloud over the bright hour of gaiety, or spread a deeper sadness over the hour of gloom, yet who would exchange it even for the song of pleasure or the burst of revelry? No, there is a voice from the tomb sweeter than song. There is a remembrance of the dead to which we turn, even from the charms of the living. Oh, the grave, the grave, it buries every error, covers every defect, extinguishes every resentment. From its peaceful bosom spring none but fond regrets and tender recollections. Who can look down upon the grave of even an enemy and not feel a compunctious throb that he should ever have warred with the poor handful of earth that lies moldering before him. But the grave of those we loved, what a place for meditation! There it is that we call up in long review the whole history of virtue and gentleness, and the thousand endearments lavished upon us almost unheeded in the daily intercourse of intimacy. There it is that we dwell upon the tenderness, the solemn, awful tenderness of the parting scene. The bed of death, with all its stifled griefs, its noiseless attendance, the last testimonies of expiring love, the feeble, fluttering, thrilling, oh, how thrilling pressure of the hand, the faint, faltering accent struggling in death to give one more assurance of affection, the last fond look of the glazing eye turning upon us even from the threshold of existence. Aye, go to the grave of buried love and meditate. There settle the account with thy conscience for every past benefit unrequited, every past endearment unregarded of that departed being who can never, never, never return to be soothed by thy contrition. I have a glimpse of another life, another reality, where I paid a visit to Washington Irving, standing there near the small fire, keeping it burning as he wrote those words two hundred years ago, days stretching into night, his pen moving furiously over the pages, nothing left to lose. His family business had gone bankrupt. He was a popular figure, even a little famous in social circles in America, but after multiple attempts at many careers, he set to reinventing himself as a writer. As he had in the past, he used a pen name, a new one this time, that he attributed this collection of short stories. 
the sketchbook of Geoffrey Crayon, Gent. Now, far from broke, Crayon was of wealthy stock, collecting tales of common people from across the countryside. It was a serialized account of life in England, intended for readers back home in America. And in the same collection were the works he would become very well known for, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle. And while those stories are fantastic, I was most struck by these words about funeral rituals, how true it still rang these many years later. And these keen insights were delivered by Irving in the guise of another. But why choose a persona to inhabit, to use another identity to deliver your own feelings, to tell truths that were impossible otherwise? A curious move indeed. Now in that other reality, maybe I move toward him to ask him the question, why? Why be known as someone else? But just as I do, I lose the connection to that realm. I'm back to where I was a year ago. As that year drew to a close, I was also thinking about graves and tombs, and I was involved in my own rituals of the dead. The cemetery offices, located just outside what was once the largest mall in America, are like many buildings in the Philadelphia suburbs, neatly locked in another time. Now, I'm not sure if it was once a stately manor and a cemetery then grew up around it, or if it was the home afforded to the groundskeeper. The job does come with housing. There is one catch, however. It's definitely haunted. Oh, not just the house, all of it. <laughs> Room for a pool if you like swimming with bones. Or maybe this was just vernacular cemetery architecture meant to neatly contain all the various services that a sprawling yard for the dead can provide. However it came to be, one can pretty quickly see that how it once was used is no longer how it must be used today. You find this a lot in the older cities, places where a stone barn is now a craft brewery or restaurant with a name like Spur and Spindle or The Beams. Now, my personal favorite variation of this is when the new owners don't even try. They take a historic building, one where a drowsy Washington might have ducked in for a nap, and covered its wide wooden plank floors with wall-to-wall -wall carpeting, lowered the already low ceilings with a drop ceiling, and now, instead of a manor house, it's the local branch of a national home insurance company, run by a guy who was once the dad of someone at your high school. If it smells like cigarettes and microwaved quiche, even better. There was a lot of that growing up, and the only reason that it's my favorite is because I miss it. The cemetery building did not smell like a decades-old tobacco habit, but the person helping us definitely did. He was also a little damp. Even without touching him, he was giving off moisture, steaming through the top of his loosened collar. If you were to open a bottle of him-scented perfume, it would have notes of dry-cleaning fluid, drugstore deodorant, yesterday's polyester, and a hastily eaten egg-white omelet. I know the blend, as I've come to work smelling that way myself. It could also be that he just came from the gym, except also, like me, I had a feeling he went to the gym rather begrudgingly, and maybe he has a Peloton machine that is covered with wet jeans as they air-dry in two mismatched pillowcases. He was a slab of a person, and his name matched his shape, Laird. If you're imagining an inflated pyramid, you're not far off. 
After apologizing for keeping us waiting, he slumped into the slate-gray air-on-office chair, which shifted on its wheels slightly over the plastic pad that was protecting the carpet beneath the glossy wooden desk. While expressing his condolences to my stepmother and myself, he went on to talk a lot about his own recent loss, the role his family played in his life, the way he was brought up, the recent move from a city in the South, and how he ended up working in the burial industry. We learned a lot about Laird that cold January morning, more than I certainly cared to. He then pivoted literally and figuratively, to ask us about our plans for burial, moving a white folder with tasteful people on the cover looking out to the distance, I guess to heaven or to the mall, maybe, satisfied in life as they had made a wonderful choice in their burial accessories. The folder contained many pamphlets, which is fun, a nesting doll where every layer got us closer to imagining our own demise in affordable monthly installments. The fact that we were talking about our burials instead of just dealing with that of my father's, which was the one most pressing, as his physical form was somewhere being kept aside, held from proceeding forward on its transformative final journey, let's call it, because for anything to go ahead, we had to go to these offices, make a few decisions, write a check, and we were prepared for that. I would say we were less prepared when we got hit with the sales pitch for our own end-of-life plans. The room itself was, in my memory now, aggressively gray. Gray carpeting, gray paint on the walls, the kind of space where, were it not for Laird's lavender shirt collar, I might think we were in a black-and-white photo. Whatever historic charm it once had had been leached out of the place. There's also something about a large-screen TV monitor in a historic room that never sits right with me. She's always the gawkiest teen at the party. In this case, a 65-inch screen was hovering there in the corner, wishing it was something else, just letting a tiny screensaver of the logo for the cemetery bounce from one edge of its face to the other. After several minutes of button-pushing, the TV resisting being used for this purpose, it finally awoke and allowed for all of its HD 4K OLED technology to be used to show us a sizzle reel about burial offerings making being in the ground look like a fantastic timeshare opportunity. Less of a share, I guess, but plenty of time. Now, we watched the presentation as varieties of granite slabs morphed into bronze plaques and photographs of, of loved ones were etched into stone by lasers. A saluting soldier dissolved into a small flag held in place by a polished brass stand and a sun dipped low behind the waves of the ocean. Or maybe, given our location, it was supposed to be the Delaware River. When it was over, Laird turned back to the pamphlets and let us know what was included in the military package, meaning not quite free, but discounted, and how my stepmother could be stacked with my father, something I still don't want to think about, and I really don't want my mother buried right beside them to get wind of either, however wind and or knowledge and or jealousy works in the great beyond. There is something that happens inside when you think you are doing one thing, but then you end up being told you're doing another, a sort of right-before-your-eyes gaslighting that, when it's about your own demise, takes on a certain something extra. My stepmother was definitely not prepared for that afternoon spent inside the offices of the Memorial Gardens to also include her deciding on granite choices and options for beveling for the marker of her own gravesite. 
It being a co-burial situation, I suppose she should have been at least aware that it could come up, but it also seemed very much like we were being upsold and someone, Laird, needed to make his quota for the sales quarter. He did his best to hide the car salesman quality of the experience, filling in the long silences with talk about his work in entertainment and how he felt called to the service of others, which if you were not the people being sold a headstone, you might stop and think, wait, entertainment? Who calls it that? And what kind of entertainment can you possibly be in here, Laird, unless you work at QVC or our sports mascot or spent summers dressed as a Hershey Kiss at Hershey Park, which he did have the frame for, so it was not entirely a terrible guess. But entertainment in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, no. I filed that question away for a minute or two as we signed my stepmother up for a payment plan and said our weary thank yous. The only part I'm skipping in this story is the 15 or 20 minutes it took to entirely reboot the computer halfway through the entering of our information into the system on the giant TV screen where we had to go through all the details about my dad's life and military service about three times before Laird finally got it to work and not without calling in a slightly younger colleague to help. That span of time was a real sit-in-your-grief moment in which nothing happened, but I did use those extra minutes to think, this person is not great at this job. They seem like they'd rather do something else. They're a little self-involved in entertainment, really. This person. And it was not until I got into the car that I figured it out. Driving away, my stepmother remarked, well, at least she only has to pay for another six months. And I told her, well, it's 60 months that you just signed up for. She let out a sigh and said she didn't think so. And I said, yes. It was a lot of money for that, and she looked out the window, and I told her I was sorry she had to go through thinking about her own burial when we were both thinking this would be about Dad and Dad alone. We listened to some classical music on the way home, and I told her I was pretty sure Laird was a drag queen. It turns out, Laird is a drag queen. Now, maybe I lived in San Francisco just long enough to know a drag queen out of drag when I see them, but there was something in the way his eyes shifted from my stepmother's to mine and then down at his pamphlets when he said entertainment that it finally clicked with me what he was up to. It was either that or something much more adult, and I'm not saying it's not that, but that's not what came up uh, when I searched for him, and <laughs> a search of a more salacious profession is not what I need in my browser history. And Laird is not just a drag artist, he's a popular one. I try not to feel a tinge of jealousy at the size of his Instagram following, but it is significant. Also, not going to obsess over the fact that he can effectively pull off a deep-plunging neckline better than I can. If you have it, we'll go for it, Laird. Now, Googling him was unlike Gary and Linda's recent clothing-optional New Moon Pagan Potluck in Persephone, enjoyable and burn-free. There was Laird on the Facebook post for the broads of Broomall, wearing a shimmering blue dress with huge puffed shoulders, a giant yellow beehive, and bright pink lipstick. Laird was striking a saucy pose, one of many, I'm sure, that awaits eager audiences in a converted barn-slash-winery in Broomall. It was kind of a relief, really, to know that Laird was still in his world of entertainment, making a go of it, spending all day in a dreary spot and then offering folks a good time once the sun goes down. Also, I was right about him, and being right is always a good feeling. It did make me think about authentic selves and strength 
How so many people have to deal with hiding, revealing, suppressing who they really are. Sometimes we never know. Sometimes it takes a huge event, a death, a divorce, a life change of some kind, say adopting a canine familiar, to shake us into realizing that whatever we thought we were, whoever we thought we were, requires re-examination. It can also be a small event, a slight at a New Year's Eve party, holding eye contact too long in the subway and realizing now you're the weird one, a miscommunication between lovers that leads to the both of you thinking that the other is on a deep-sea fishing trip because they love the sea when, in fact, the sea is no one's friend. And you'd both rather be on solid, dry land, preferably near a margarita. Or maybe I'm finally just going through a mid-dale crisis. Do I even like turtlenecks? Of course I do. The amount of money I save on scarves, immeasurable by the human mind. But perhaps, maybe especially when a parent dies and one has to deal with all of their stuff, soaring through a life that is known to you but also distant, a song remembered from an echo, one considers the question, who am I now that they are gone? Who am I in the world now? One can meditate at a gravesite, or one can meditate on the same subject from a warm place inside. Perhaps now is a good time to hold up this question once again, as I stare into the pages of a new Ram Dass stay planner and think, who will I be this year? A rabbit in the year of the dragon? I've dated a few dragons in the past, and the rabbit doesn't always fare well in that match. But beyond my zodiacal position, which is always incredibly accurate, I mean... Could I be any more wood rabbit? Lucky numbers one and six, yes, please. My colors gray, green, black, and blue. <laughs> Hello, that's so me. However, they are not likely to openly express their opinions, so it is difficult for people to understand their real thoughts. Let's stop there, shall we? What I'm asking is this. Is an authentic self possible? What makes someone strong, and how does that affect the other, and does it matter? How do I move forward as my own person? How far away am I from working at a memorial garden office building, walking people through their own final, final decisions? A job, by the way, having worked in entertainment myself, I would probably be pretty good at. I mean, wouldn't you buy an eternal resting place from a man that looks this good in a Bill Blash turtleneck and matching slacks? And even if we do figure it all out, well, who we are at the end of days is a pile of ashes in a box under... A handsome piece of stone with a nicely beveled plaque marking our names in the span of time that we were alive and not in a box. And while I can warp into that dark place pretty quickly, I won't. We're not in a box yet, you and I, so let's make the most of it. It's the start of a new era. Let's figure out who we can be together. Although don't change your general shape, because right now... It's perfect in length and width to squeeze through the warm, glowy portal full of promise that leads us to... The Deep Night.
Oh, friends, hello, it's me, Del Seaver. Wow, that was a long opening. <laughs> but we got here, and I'm so pleased to be with you and pleased to be your host for another journey through the quest for self that the deep night has become. We arrive with you tonight, as we always do, direct from the foul banks of the Gowanus. Now, the mighty Gowani, I'm sure, will be tempted itself to evolve in the new year, a great shifting of its chemical cake batter like bottom, a toxic flopping and sloshing that will see it enter a new span of existence. Maybe this is the year it finally vents out something pleasant or becomes a welcome estuary for something other than viscous layers of venereal disease. Well, if it did, I'm not sure I'd recognize it. Oh, now I'm worried I've conjured something. Don't change a thing, you sulfuric snaking stream. I need you to be my constant in this multiverse. The one thing that I can hold on to. Not literally, because my flesh would instantly melt and I'd be covered in chemical burns, but something to keep always present in my mind from a distance of at least 30 feet and never, ever downwind. What I hope for the most is that like all of us, the Gowanus gets to be its authentic self in the new year. I hope Laird spent December out there doing inappropriate things with a giant candy cane while lip-syncing to Eartha Kit, or making lewd jokes about chimneys and packages, because deaths tend to spike around this time of year, and I bet he's got a pretty full caseload at work selling widows on tombstones and drawers in the mausoleum. I'd wager a gift certificate for a ranky massage that he shows up at work with gold glitter above his eyes at least once between now and January 10th. And God has blessed him, he deserves to have fun. When we try to get to the heart of who we are, the place many of us may revisit first is childhood. If you look at a picture of yourself as a kid, it can be like an aura photo, can't it? Shimmering with the memories of that experience. You're trying to decode it. You can fill in the rest of the frame, that which was cropped out, and maybe you feel the sting of embarrassment that happened right after that photo or right before. A hot flush to the cheeks after hearing something or saying something. Maybe it's a feeling of love or fear or maybe nothing at all. I would question whether there can be an essential version of us at such a young age. Are we not receiving so much and processing so much that things take time to build and shift within us? Sometimes we might hear something that changes our entire perception of ourselves. It doesn't take much for me to be transported right back to elementary school. Never quite fitting in at the lunch tables, finding my way with a precariously balanced tray full of overcooked green beans, a gaggle of tater tots, and a burger that could be mistaken for driftwood in both color and consistency. To get to a seat at any of the wood-veneered combination bench-slash tables aligned in four long columns that ran the length of the room, one had to navigate past all the people who didn't want you to sit with them or the people you were hoping never to sit with. The room itself doubled as the gym, so a half hour earlier you could have been sweatily climbing ropes or attempting to follow the square dancing routine. This was the same room you were now about to eat in. Along the walls were moments of glory for some people, the winners of the Presidential Physical Fitness Award, a wooden board bolted to the wall with a list of names for every year under a smiling 8 by 10 photo of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Ronald Reagan shaking hands. 
Other plaques at other gym-specific achievements. Fastest, highest, most distance, longest duration. I was not going to have my name up there for anything, but somehow my brain still hoped it would happen. It never did. At the far end of the gym was a stage, because this was also the auditorium, a room we'd file into for assemblies with Reddy Kilowatt, who taught us not to put our fingers in the socket, or the yearly visit from Officer Friendly, an attempt to make cops more approachable to young people. I might start with a name change if it were me, but he was friendly, so maybe they had no choice. At the time, I thought it was his actual last name until I realized what was going on the next year when a different policeman showed up with the same name. On that stage, I was soundly defeated in the ping-pong championship. Again, I knew I would lose, and yet the sting of having that come true has never left. The kid who won still has a ping-pong table set up in his house. I just know it. Right there at the foot of the stage, at least once a week, was my mother. She volunteered to run the school store. The word store is doing a lot here. It was a folding table covered with a sheet on which sat an array of erasers, pencils, pencil cases, pennants, T-shirts, and branded merchandise specific to our school. Our mascot was a Viking then, but now I gather it might be a bobcat, which is fine. I was never sure what Vikings were doing in suburban Philadelphia anyway. There were Viking things to decorate your desk, small toys that could fit in a book bag, some useful, some just there. Some bought with peanut butter smeared quarters pulled from a sandwich bag. It was not weird to have my mom at lunch. I didn't have many friends by the end of my time at that school, so it was nice to have someone to talk to. That sounds sad, but I did not think so at the time. And actually, as things have gone, I consider any extra moment I had with her as a gift. And maybe that's because I'm the same age now that she was when she died, and that is weird and sad. But her being there a little bit more for me is joy, only joy. And as a bonus, she would usually let me buy one or two things from the store. There was never any skimming, if that's what you're thinking. She made me pay actual money for this stuff, which is only right. Money she gave me, but still. She worked retail her whole life, so this was not that different, and I think she liked being there for me. I do wonder about her own aspirations in life as, as an artist, how it came to be that someone from a well-resourced background who studied ceramics and history and loved textiles and fashion ended up working for free in a cafe gymatorium. She'd also studied teaching, and her mother was a teacher, and her father was heavily involved in the church, so maybe it wasn't so far a stretch, this act of service for the community. Education adjacent, in a way, it's so confusing to try and understand who we are, let alone who our parents really were. Too much second-guessing and judgment that really should not be there. She stepped up when no one else would, and she did that a lot. And even now, when I don't do that, I feel a pang of guilt because of her example. The school store purchase I remember most vividly was a fuzzy, small, blue creature. It was basically a cotton ball-sized pom-pom with two googly eyes glued on its front. It had two paper feet that had tacky backing so you could stick it somewhere, and that would have been enough, really, but it also had a satiny ribbon attached to its bottom that had a saying printed on it like a fortune cookie, and this one read, You're an old softy. I think I bought it and then gave it to my mom for Mother's Day or something. I'm not sure she loved it because it ended up in my plastic box of crayons and markers that I kept in the living room. 
For her, I considered its old, softy messages. I know you can get upset and angry with me, but you're not going to stay mad forever, maybe, unless I meant it for my dad. I think maybe I got so tangled up in its meaning that I may have never given it away to anyone as I was unsure of how it would be received. I could never even commit to peeling the sticker part off the feet, uncertain that I wanted to make it a permanent fixture anywhere for someone to discover. Also, we were a no-stickers-on-things other than in sticker books kind of household. Anything that could leave a permanent mark was discouraged. Now, I've mentioned this before, but it goes with the coasters theory. There are coaster families and families with water rings on things. And you know what? Both are fine. But I am judging you on the rings, silently, from a distance, but judging. We can still be friends, but I will put coasters out when you visit. But in keeping this fuzzy little thing I never stuck anywhere, I absorbed its message. I was the old softy. It was speaking to me. But not like tough on the outside, gentle on the inside. I was just round and soft all the time, a soft puffball of a person. I was never going to make it on the championship boards on a Ronald Reagan and Arnold Schwarzenegger shaking hands. I was never going to be able to climb those thick ropes the fastest. I believed that all people could be friendly, officers or no. I was soft, at the very least, not strong. And the way that cemented itself in my being well... It's still something I'm turning over in my chest. In this moment of reflection, right now, how do I, a softy, enter in my own strength as a person? Am I authentically a soft person? Or do I just need to redefine strong? There were other things about my childhood that stoked the soft, big-eyed, quiet ball you can stick anywhere energy. I changed my name from Daly to Dale in the eighth grade. It was a quick decision. I've never gone back. Daly is a family name. My father had it and so did his uncle before him. Somewhere along the line, perhaps after he got back from Vietnam, my dad became Dale. A solid name. An unwavering name. A redwood of a name. There is no moving the fortified Dale. My great-uncle Daly, on the other hand, he stuck with it. Uncle Daly was sly, a motorcycle rider who rode well into his old age and a dirty joke teller. After a riding accident in which he quote-unquote almost tore his nuts off, he relaxed a bit, and most of his easy riding was with Jesus, becoming active in his church but still prone to saying things like, I almost tore my nuts off. But what of this other self I mentioned, the boy with a bowl cut his mother gave him known as Daly S., Let's take a moment to remember that little fella now. He was a strawberry shortcake kid, obsessed with the world of strawberry shortcake, which debuted as a TV special in 1980. Like many cartoon offerings of the era, the TV special was specifically designed to move units and was produced by the Kenner Toy Corporation, which held the rights to the strawberry shortcake figures. I mean... They were dolls, small dolls centered around a six-year-old girl in all pink and her cat named Custard. The TV special worked, and I convinced my mom to buy me a strawberry shortcake doll and then another and another. I may have said I'm a completist when it comes to collecting things, and the world of strawberry shortcake was no different. I wanted the full set. Now, the dolls did have a specific novelty. They were scented. I'm not sure why smelling things were so popular, but it was the heyday of scratch-and-sniff technology. Kenner took what had been relegated to small circular stickers that you scratched feverishly with your nail to get a hit of cookie dough to a whole new berry-scented level. And best of all, no scratching required. 
Each character was named after a baked good, and each doll smelled like whatever baked good it was named after. Huckleberry pie, blueberry muffin, plum pudding, the peculiar purple pie man of Porcupine Peak. After playing with the dolls for a few hours, the entire living room would smell like sickly sweet plastic. A toxic approximation of a bakery would cling to your fingers and clothes. And I think it's safe to say, while some of those odors could eventually be gotten used to as something almost pleasant, those who know know that apple dumpling was gross. The worst. That little red-haired baby with her yellow bonnet and pet turtle had an acrid chemical scent that hit you in the back of your throat like walking through a rancid orchard behind a brewery just off exit 13 of the Jersey Turnpike. Sadly for her, Apple Dumplin' spent most of her time at my house wrapped in a plastic bag, no doubt asphyxiating on her own horrible off-gassing. Stickers were a no-go, and these smelly dolls were on the same level. So... My father ensured many got wrapped and sealed at the end of every night an attempt to be able to breathe normally as he slept. It was perhaps because of my fondness for the stinky sweet strawberry shortcake gang or my devoted parenting of three fine cabbage patch kids along with their two pet cooses and a cabbage patch pony named Misty that I became sensitive to the teasing of my next-door neighbor, Mr. Burns. Mr. Burns had owned the house I grew up in before my parents bought it and now lived next door in a ranch home that had sculpted green shag carpeting and a small black-and-white television set. They also had a giant glass bowl full of hard candies that they kept on the dining room table, and if my parents were out, I'd sometimes be shuffled over to their house to be in their care for a few hours. Other times I'd just wander over and hang out with them. I would watch TV on the little set, grabbing handfuls of butterscotch candies and peppermints, letting a root beer barrel dissolve in my mouth until the sides split and it became sharp, a hazard to my darting tongue. Mr. Burns only ever wore white T-shirts, high black pants, white socks, and suspenders. He was never without a wad of chewing tobacco in his cheek. He was and is the only person I'd ever seen use a spittoon in real life. He would laugh sometimes and tell me Daly was a girl's name, which... I'm not actually sure that it is, but okay. He would say, Daily, what you need is some Hoboken stew. That's all it would take to stick my ribs together and put hair on my chest. I guess clenched ribs was a physical ideal in the 1940s or something. It sounded like something to aspire to. I appreciate now that the recipe for this life-altering soup changed every time it came up. It always started out fine. A, a pound of tomatoes cooked with onions, peppers, salt. Then it got more exotic. A gallon of motor oil, a tire iron, a crescent wrench, two beer cans, a handful of wood shavings, a ballpoint pen, rubber cement. I was sad when he died a few years later because I never got to try it, which at the time seemed plausible, and because I missed the twinkle in his eye every time he got a chance to start running through those ingredients. My dad chuckling with an earshot as he raked the leaves nearby. I never did well with death as a kid. My grandparents, Mr. Burns, Mr. Hooper from Sesame Street, whenever someone died, I'd go down a rabbit hole of grief and end up with a stomach ache and in the nurse's office. It was like I felt things too much, like Little Man Tate from that movie that nobody ever remembers when I bring it up, but I swear it's about a hypersensitive kid. I think there's a scene where he's super upset about acid rain. And other than the child prodigy part, I relate to it. My elementary school nurse was Mrs. Bramley, and she drove a pink Cadillac, a reward for her sales record with the Mary Kay Cosmetics Company. 
and she was clearly inspired by the fashion of one Nancy Reagan. She had a swirl of blonde hair on the top of her head that resembled cotton candy, and she wore suit and skirt sets that came in a variation of navy blue and or navy blue. In my mind, she had served on the front in the Great War and probably enjoyed a thimbleful of gin every evening as she listened to Benny Goodman on the hi-fi. What she did not have in that cement block room of an office was very much medicine. She had band-aids and chalky white discs that were chewed up to treat everything from headaches to nausea to broken arms. I loved going there. My happy place is an older woman feeding me generic brand Tums. On one unhappy occasion, perhaps a stomach-related thing or a cough that went on too long, I ended up seeing a specialist on the recommendation of one of my mother's friends. I'm not sure why we couldn't just go to my regular doctors, Con Baron Rissmiller, the latter of which looked like Jerry Lewis in The Nutty Professor and sounded like Carol Channing. But I remember the room of the specialist being dark, the metal table being cold, and feeling things intensely, partly because it was my first time in a medical gown. After what seemed like forever, a short-haired woman in a white lab coat finally came in, introduced herself, and began looking over my chart. I don't know what was written on the chart, but after asking me how I was feeling, she politely asked me, Have you gotten your period yet? I will tell you this. In that moment, I thought a lot about the period. Not the bodily function, but the punctuation mark. My mind was completely empty other than the image of a gigantic black dot superimposed over my brain, rotating over and over again as I tried to figure out how I could possibly have one. Then, as she went on, I heard the slightly familiar word, menstruation, and I had to interrupt. Some small voice came out of my chest and said flatly, I'm a boy. Somewhere a church bell rang. The dead protoplasmic spirit of Daly S. in all his girlish ways floated up and out of my bones, waving as he soared up to some strawberry-scented castle in the sky. The doctor went over and turned up the lights a bit and said, of course you are, of course, and she flipped through the chart and fumbled around trying to put this awkward moment behind her and pushed on my stomach and scribbled something down and told me it wasn't appendicitis or anything like that and that I should take some white chalky tablets and that was that and she escaped back out of there as fast as I've ever seen a doctor move. Looking at old photos recently, I still don't think I was an especially feminine-looking child, but after that doctor's appointment, I let my parents know that I'd prefer they call me Dale. Just Dale. Once during a summer working construction for the company my dad worked for, the other guys gave me the nickname Fluffy, a variation on my dad's nickname, which was Fuzzy. Fluffy, while not especially manly, was still better than being asked if I knew how to put in a tampon. So there it was, this tangled bit inside me, a wrestling between what constitutes soft and what makes someone strong and in comparison to what and I say all this knowing that things feminine are not inherently soft and that strong and soft don't have to be related to gender, nor do they have to be opposites. Of course, these things are complicated and intertwined. For me, though, there was always a measuring up between who I was and who my father was, how he represented to me growing up someone who I thought of as classically almost cartoonishly strong, a person who could wrest metal and wood into structures using his own body and a few tools. A person who built things, who knew how cars worked, who would outrace cops, could lift up a giant radiator when it fell on my mother's hand, who once, unfortunately perhaps, threw a man into a snowbank for hitting his newly repaired car. There was, for me, something to be feared in him. 
It took a long time to unravel that, or at least see it for what it was. Insecurity, anxiety, depression, rage. All of those things existed in him, like two people sharing a grave, bound by their context. It also took a long time, well after my mother's death, to see her strengths and see the ways he was also soft. My mother was the person I was more like, or so I thought, the person who I spent the most time with, the one who bought me all sorts of toys, strawberry-scented ones and ones that came with tiny guns, the one who I was happy to see every week at the school store, the one who showed me how to shop, exposed me to my first turtleneck, who instilled an appreciation for finer things, even if it required going to the layaway counter every week to get them. Whatever patience I have was developed waiting in lines as my mother put a small amount of money down every week to complete a single purchase. With her not around, it was just me and Dad. And in those years, I saw him be both strong, even as he aged, and gentle. A man that tended to his gardens as his mother had, who was thoughtful beyond what most people would expect, loyal, true to his word. A man who made things, never stopped making things, a relentless drive of self-expression, an artist. And with that, I could see, as many fathers and sons, we are more alike than different. I'm also still my mother's son, to a blend of these two people, with all of their strengths and softer sides, each informing the other, like a drag queen selling gravestones. The last year is one in which time proved most elastic, in which great waves of grief washed over me and threatened to loose me from my moorings. Some inner strength meant that I did not yield. I did what I needed to do. I stepped forward as my mother and father would have. I tried to navigate situations beyond what most would have had to deal with, and whether or not it was perfect, it was done. The subsequent blipping in and out of realities that I've experienced was as Galinda suggested to me on the solstice as we stared into each other's eyes across the forgiveness altar, pupils wide from great heaping doses of Tylenol cold and elderberry syrup meant to tame a late winter flu. Maybe all of my inability to hold my form was a side effect of being so resolutely present for an entire year. And the fact is, the authentic self is not fixed. It is not a result, but a process, and at times we display glimmers of what we truly are, and the trick is just to acknowledge those moments, those attributes, and be able to recall them should the need arise. We continue to form and reform from day one, taking in influences from all sides, synthesizing that information in our beings, mixing it with good and bad examples and whatever destinies our genes hold for us, secrets embedded in double helixes that under pressure may either help us or hinder us. As we face this new year, I hope you'll be confident in your journey, that authenticity reveals itself when you need it, and that it gives you strength and softness along the way, and while it is not always my first or even second nature to promote myself and my work, allow me this. If you need any help manifesting yourself or other things in 2024, I encourage you to check out my new low-content book, the This Manifestation Journal, Better Work, a notebook for people who need a win, available exclusively on the Upstart website, Amazon.com, like the river but filled with stuff. But even if you don't buy it, but you should... I am sending positive vibrations in your directions. Thank you so much for listening, and remember that although this deep night is ending, a bright new day is just ahead. Strawberry shortcake, my, she's looking swell. Cute little doll with a strawberry smell.
Deep Night with Dale is independently produced, performed, and written by James Bewley. Podcast theme by Via Mardot. Season artwork by Victor Bizar Gomez. Photography this season by Emma Mead. New website designed by Maria Belen of Bella Mona Designs. All of these artists are wonderful and worth looking up and following on social media or hiring for your next great thing. For everything Dale and Deep Night, true denizens of the deep should visit deepnightshow.com or tune into the show on Spotify or wherever fine podcasts can be found. Remember to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and follow Dale on Instagram at Dale Seaver. Thanks for paying a visit to the deep night. <laughs> <laughs>